The protests that have happened following the killing of George Floyd and so many others have prompted organizations to take a closer look at systemic racism and what can be done to help build a bridge of equality. I'm Robin Shannon, and on this Fordham Conversations, I'm joined by Rafael Zapata, Fordham University's first chief diversity officer. We'll talk about Fordham University's action plan, addressing racism, educating for justice. So can you summarize uh, some of the key points in Fordham's action plan? I think, you know, if, if you go through the action plan, it's essentially drawing on our mission, right, to educate for justice, uh, curb personalis, uh, engaging our local community here in New York, all those things are central elements of who we are as an institution. The question is how do we kind of uh, narrow the gap between our espoused values, right? Who we say we are and, and how consistently we can be, uh, be that uh, best self, especially when it comes to a, a challenge as, as just entrenched as systemic racism. So our solutions are, are many fold. How do we create a campus environment where um, you know, black uh, and other uh, folks of color who are members of the faculty, who are staff, uh, students, uh, members of the local community can feel an authentic sense of belonging. So some of those, um, the solutions are, are, first of all, we have to attract uh, students, faculty and staff to wanna come here to be successful here. And, and, and when they're here, we have to make sure we retain them and that they can thrive. So a lot of those specific initiatives are one to ensure a more diverse community because what we have in particular with black students uh, and faculty in particular uh, is that they're not a lot, you know, and, and this is New York City. So when you contrast, especially when we're up at Rose Hill, which is 85% Black and Latinx, and you contrast the presence of those communities on campus, that stark difference can, can make people pause and say, well, well, where are we? And, um, and in the classroom, you oftentimes find Black students who might be one or the only, one of a few or the only one in a class. And when you're having conversations around issues of race, a lot of the pressure can fall on you to kind of be the voice for your entire community, when we all know that there's diversity within communities as well as between communities. So, so you have the, comp the, the efforts to deal with compositional diversity, right? The admissions piece, the attracting and recruiting and retaining talented and diverse faculty and staff, and our authentic engagement with the Bronx and the Lincoln Square communities. Additionally, what kind of um, education might there be for people who are interested in, but maybe not have a facility around issues of race? and that can be anyone, but primarily white uh, members of the community or other people who are not black to get a sense of what does it mean? What do we mean by, by anti-racism? What do we mean? How do we understand anti-blackness in ways that are both obvious and subtle, right? A lot of research demonstrates that the more closely one approximates, if you're a person of color, more, the more closely they approximate, you know, white culture and kind of, you know, assimilationist kind of presentation or values, the more accepted one is. Now, there's nothing wrong with that if that is someone's authentic uh, self, but if someone is coming from a, a different um, sense of self or identity or experience, you know, where being black, just being oneself can be counted as uh, against you. So we're not looking to 
I, I think so the goal in that is kind of how do we develop a more sophisticated sense of, of who black people actually are. And so part of that is also the increase, it's the aforementioned increased presence, it's the availability of courses, it's um, some of our initiatives are uh, looking to provide funding to academic departments to thoughtfully integrate questions of race into their introductory courses. Uh, so part of that is, is to fund faculty development and um, pedagogical practices in which that can be integrated into the curriculum. Um, and integrated is a really important piece as opposed to kind of being offered on one day. So not to tokenize, but to really thoughtfully integrate them. And then just being really intentional about our relationship with the Bronx community. How do we engage? What signals do we send? How can we um, more consistently uh, uh, in, engage uh, with, with the utmost of hospitality, right? With members of the local community as potential students, um, as people who could engage in some of the things that we do on campus, some of the educational opportunities, as well as uh, participate in things like the Bronx Book Festival, which we've hosted. You know, so, and, and so all this is to say is that those, those, some of those things are already happening. How could we create more opportunities for those things to happen? So, um, and then, you know, on the academic side, providing more support for existing programs like African and African American Studies, the Bronx African American uh, History Project, and other things that are already uh, going on well how can we provide them with the kind of support that would help them uh, do even better? Now, Raphael, how did the university decide that these were the best measures to take? Was it group of academics, group of students, a mixture? How did, how, how did that decision come about? Well, some of these uh, were already in the works. So I'll give you an example. Um, one, of the, one of the programs is the Urban Justice Scholars Program, which seeks to identify talented students who want to understand, this was uh, structural racism, and structural inequality from, you know, from that perspective, from a systemic perspective. So the students we're looking to attract, right, are who are interested in issues that play out in communities like the Bronx and other urban communities across the United States, right, um, from a structural level. How do we understand systemic racism and systemic inequality from a structural level? But these students don't want to just understand. They want to take their education and once they graduate to actually transform those structures into more just and equitable structures. So that program kind of has a strong anti-racist bent already, right? We want to attract students who care about these issues. It's, it's in our Catholic Jesuit mission to be involved in issues of the day and not just kind of, all right, we get it but to actually do something and transform um, you know, the issues that play out that lead to injustice, right? We can't just treat the symptoms, right? Um, so let's say education. Tutoring programs are important, that's great, but if we're looking at broad systemic inequality in education, how do we develop schools that actually serve the needs of students from low-income or segregated communities like we find in so many in the Bronx? So those would be the foci, and, and this could be in any discipline. You know, it, let's just go back to the Bronx. Asthma, some of the highest asthma rates are in communities in the Bronx. What would a student do? They might want to take some classes in biology, uh, chemistry, uh, environmental science, or some combination, maybe even sociology, 
um, to understand the issues so that when they graduate, they can take a role in which they can help create, um, develop a public health approach to these issues as opposed to simply treatments, right? So this can, students can come from any disciplines. So that was already in the works, um, as was this, you know, cluster hire program for faculty, you know, diverse faculty. So some of these, see, these issues were already in conversation. Um, others came through conversations with faculty, students, um, members of the board, uh, alumni. Some of them came directly from students who were making certain demands. We want to see more anti-racism training. We want to see more faculty development, particularly around issues in the classroom. And again, we're not starting um, from the beginning. What this is going to do is make those efforts that are already underway um, broadened and more available. So those investments will happen more broadly. It feels like a, a lot more people are paying attention and people have responded. And then finally, I'll, I'll just want to be very clear that this is just the first set of initiatives that um, we hope to uh, engage in to address systemic racism. We have some outstanding students, faculty and staff and alumni partnerships with local communities that collaboratively we can refine some of the things we've talked about while also, um, you know, what haven't we thought about? What else might we be thinking about in order to move, um, to help dismantle these systems that reproduce racism and racial injustice? Now, Raphael, why is this all taking place now? Is it because of what's going on in the news, in society? Um, why is Fordham working on this now? Well, I think like all institutions from business to, uh, to entertainment, arts, sports, you know, we've been impacted by what's been happening in the country. Let's be very clear. These issues aren't new, right? Um, it was just, what, uh, six years ago, Eric Garner was put in a chokehold and said, I can't breathe. And it was videotaped also with a very different outcome. Um, I don't know if the current context of the pandemic with so many people being home, the stress of being home, but also just, you know, nine minutes with a knee on somebody's neck, right? Um, you know, crying for their mom. You know, that, that was painful, but, you know, police brutality is not new, you know, sadly. We can, you know, people are integrated the, the cases of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, which just happened within a period of months, right? Rayshard Brooks, late after, was killed, and, um, you know, afterwards by a cop because he was sleeping in his car outside of, you know, outside of a, a, a fast food restaurant. So these issues, sadly, are not new. For some reason, it's captivated our attention. So now, you know, what's, what's been really um, almost, almost shocking is that, you know, the state of Mississippi removed the Confederate symbol from its state flag. That was not a new request, right? Um, the Princeton University removed the name of Woodrow Wilson. He was an avowed racist even though he had many accomplishments as president. Um, but that was not a new request by black students and members of the black community at Princeton, right? And then Colin Kaepernick, all of a sudden people understand like, all right, well, maybe he had, you know, he had a reason why he was bending the knee, you know, taking a knee during the national anthem. And all of a sudden people are, are and now the Redskins are changing their name. So these issues were not new. Some of these demands, you know, were decades decades old for some reason, and I, and I won't pretend to have the answer, 
um, this moment has touched people beyond the black community or people who typically would not, for whom this issue would not resonate in this way uh, to the point where they're like, this is, this is just absolutely wrong and we need to do something differently. So, um, but, but I think you can disconnect it from the pandemic, I think, and, and all the things that people are, are struggling with and the disproportionate impact it's also had on communities of color. And Raphael, uh, you mentioned the, the Bronx Book Festival for one, but what are some of the other ways that Fordham University is working to reach out to members of the community and sort of embrace them or take, have them take part in what's going on at the college? My office has worked with students at the Rose Hill campus, as well as Dean Maura Mast and her staff and others, um, the Center for Community Engaged Learning, to co-sponsor the Bronx Celebration Day in which um, members of the community and mem members of, of the university engaged. So we've hosted, um, you know, uh, uh, artists, you know, musicians, as well as hosted um, local businesses to kind of um, to to kind of introduce themselves to members of the Fordham University community, while also members of the of the local Bronx community. So one year it was on campus. And then in 2019, it was on Fordham Plaza, which was wonderful because, you know, it just had this block party feel. People can come and go. We gave away a lot of swag. And, um, you know, you just chit chat with members of the community. Father McShane came by, you know, said hello. You know, the students, it was a student driven effort. And, um, but the artists were all local artists of diverse backgrounds, mainly from the Bronx, uh, which, was, which was great. And it included a lot of uh, young people too, among the dancers and artists. So, um, you know, that's one way. And, and there's the pe people are doing a lot of outreach. Some of the things on the action plan, um, like the work that students do, tutoring students um, in Cardinal Hayes, the Liberty Partnerships Program, which is a gem at, at Fordham. They do a lot of great work. Their offices on Fordham Road. You have some outstanding women leading that work. And that's all Bronx youth, right? And not to mention the work of C-STEP, you know, the C-STEP program, they go into a lot of local high schools. They, they bring those students on campus and as young as middle school. So there's a lot of work going on. And I think um, we can build on that. You know, the gates, you know, give a particular impression. And um, how to, again, what it, how might we, you know, dissolve the sense of, I don't know if we could ever fully remove those gates, but how can we make people feel like, they are welcome, that this institution is not just in the Bronx, but it's for the Bronx. And we're gonna be doing a lot more intentional thinking about how to send that, give people that sense. Now, as Fordham University's first chief diversity officer, you hit the ground running. So, so um, how does it feel to be the first? I've been, you know, I was the chief, first chief diversity officer in my previous institution at Providence College. And I learned a lot, right? The first couple of years, you build building relationships, working on priorities. For us, that has been enhancing faculty and staff diversity, uh, programming for students, and doing some community engagement. And, and the, the relationship building piece is really important because the work has to be uh, collaborative and owned by everyone to some degree, right? How is it going to play out at WFUV? How is it going to play out 
in the you know in mission integration and planning in student affairs and human resources so that takes some time and then also learning the excellent work that's already being done how do we support that how do we amplify it and then assessing you know where are the gaps and and that's what we've been doing the first two and a half years we haven't just been studying it again we've been doing um engaged in some initiatives but you know it, it takes a while to wrap your mind around it but we're developing a strategic we have a strategic framework uh focusing with mission at the in, in the center but issues of access intergroup relations capacity building among others guiding our priorities so part of that is now going out into the community and helping people kind of think about how these things play out in their unit and developing goals. My thanks to Rafael Zabata, Fordham University's Chief Diversity Officer. Up next, I talk with Michelle Silverthorne, a lawyer and diversity and inclusion trainer. She's also author of the best-selling book, Authentic Diversity, How to Change the Workplace for Good. Michelle, can you list ways that companies are just not getting it right when it comes to workplace diversity? Oh, Robin, how much time do we have? Okay, <laughs> let me, you know, when I, when I talk about the old rules of diversity, a lot of what I talk about is how as individuals, we are not doing the real work that we need to do, right? So we are not, we're trying to make the business case all the time and saying, you know, if you hire X, the results will be Y and we create, make people into widgets. People are not widgets, right? We do things like we say bias is fine and everyone has it and it's okay. But let me tell you how bias cuts you down from success. What it feels like to be excluded and not feel like you're a part of an in-group that has access to the good work and the transparency and the competencies and knowing what it takes to succeed. So there are so many different things that companies are doing right now. We're not talking about race. We're not having the hard conversations of, especially because I'm a black woman, what it means to be a black and what it means to be a black woman in the workplace. We pretend that everyone's at the same starting line. Everyone just needs the same access and they'll succeed. Trust me, some people are way ahead on day one because they have knowledge and they have connections and they actually have experience doing similar types of work to this. And we have to recognize that. So what are companies doing wrong? I will just say this. Well, I'll give two reasons. One, you aren't listening to your marginalized employees. When they tell you what they need, they need transparency, they need competencies, they need champions, they need to actually do programs that work to retain them. You have to listen to them and deliver what they need. Second issue, you have to put on some goals, right? Because we aren't gonna change the world overnight if we just say, well, you know, we had, you know, three queer um, executives, right? And that was fine. But what I really want to get to is more. What is more? What is, what is your measurement of more? What does more look like to you? And then once you have the goal in mind, it doesn't have to be a quota. Y'all, goals aren't quotas. We're not gonna be cut down if we don't meet our quota. But what I want you to do is put into place the steps that will take you to get to that goal. And then you can say, here's how we progress toward that goal. Here's what worked. Here's what didn't work. Here's what we're gonna change. And this, these are the executives who are in charge of that. So that's what I want companies to do. And when we're talking about the executives, the leadership, what is leadership specifically failing to do in terms of creating this diverse environment? They are lacking the courage to say, you know, this is the hill I am going to stand on. Here is a new system. You got to adopt your behaviors to fit that new system. Here are the reasons I am putting this new system into place. I am going to stand behind the system. I'm not going to send it out to, you know, my HR team. And if the system doesn't work, I'm going to blame them. I am going to put my name on this and I'm going to say, I stand by this. Here's how I need you to get on board. 
And then if you discriminate against someone, if you harass someone, if you bully someone, if you constantly commit microaggressions against someone, you aren't expected to stay. You aren't the one who stays. You are the one who leaves. And I really, really want leaders to commit to that. Now, Michelle, in the workplace, I've heard people say, you know, I don't see color uh, and not in, even just in the workplace, period. So how does this so-called color blindness work against diversity and inclusion? Oh, so many people say they don't see color. I don't see color. I don't see race. You know, I always tell people you don't see color. You don't see race. I have a, I have a TED talk that's literally all about folks who say I don't see color. So here's what I ask you to do. I want you to look at some things for me. I want you to look at your neighborhood. I want you to look at your children's schools. I want to look at your peer groups, your friendship groups. Look at your world and be honest about your world. And you tell me you don't see color, then please explain to me all of the other reasons other than race that that happens. And when you are done giving me all the other reasons other than race, I'm gonna look at you and say, it's because of race too. And it's primarily because of race because I live in this country too and I see how this country is structured, okay? So let's talk about that. And then once you see it, and I spend so much of my time trying to get people to see it, then you can recognize what interventions folks need, right? The interventions that black people need, the interventions that Latinx people need, they're not a monolith, but they're also not all people of color needing the exact same thing. So if we can really be honest with ourselves and if we look at our C-suite and say, you know, our entire C-suite is made up of white men, but I don't see race and I don't see color. It's just qualifications. It's just credentials, right? Then I'm going to tell you your C-suite's made up of white men. So either you want to work on changing that or we're going to have this exact same conversation 10 years from now. And what's a C-suite? Oh, it's the executive suite. So the CEO, the CIO, the, the C people, they're all in this. <laughs> all the C people. The, the and C, I can call, call them the C people. That's what I'll do in my program. <laughs> the C people. Uh, and Michelle, why are Americans, especially white Americans, so afraid to talk about race? Oh, girl, how much time do you have? So there's so many reasons. I mean, in my TED Talk, I talk about this idea that our country's a melting pot. And I'm not, I mean, I, I'm an American, but I did not grow up here. I'm an immigrant. And so I grew up in a country that's 95% Black. I grew up in Jamaica. I also grew up in a country that's 30, 30, 30. It's a lot of um, mixed, um, mixed different in this season, Trinidad and Tobago. Um, and both countries, we talk about race a lot. And then you come here and there's this, this um, prohibition, it seems, to talking about race. It's this perspective that you are socialized as a child to never talk about race. And I'm specifically talking about white people at this point. You are socialized to not talk about race. You are told that talking about race is in fact racist, that even addressing race makes you a racist, that even thinking about race and considering race, that makes you a racist. We work so hard to just avoid talking about race. There's a great, you know, the really great series of studies, and I talk about that in my book, we have to talk about race. You know, this idea that we are a melting pot and we don't see the color of someone's skin and we only see the content of their character. And I look at the neighborhoods and I look at the schools and I look at, you know, the percentage of black people who have not, who own a house in America is the same as it was in 1968. I look at the data. You cannot tell me you don't see race as an individual because if you are telling me that, I want you to look at your life and show me the proof of the fact that you do not see race. Because if I look at the lives of a lot of people who I work with and a lot of the companies that I consult with, I see the proof that they see race in every decision that they make, in the peer groups that they have, in the networks that they have, and the people that they hire. So this idea that we have been told our whole lives that we should never talk about race, that's a nice idea, but you're also negating the fact that race matters a lot to me. 
the color of my skin matters a lot to me. The identity that I have matters a lot to me. It is my passport into spaces that I am welcome. It excludes me from spaces I am not welcome. And it is my ancestor's legacy to me. So please don't tell me that you don't see that because I know you do. And the fact that you do matters to me. Something we critically need to think about. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michelle, can you help define uh, the word unconscious bias and also explain how a business can best address this? Mm, so unconscious bias, right? It is that automatic system one thinking. So system your brain, and this is one theory of it, but there's system one thinking and system two thinking. So system one thinking is what processes 99% of the information coming at you. It's like your brain on steroids. Your brain, it's your brain on autopilot is a better description. And so it's like when you walk down the street and you see something that's tall and green and has leaves, it's a tree, right? You see red signs and red circles. Don't touch, don't go there. Automatically all the time you're processing that. But then here's the story that I will tell. And if you have, um, my kids are biracial. We live on the north side of Chicago. I'm a black woman. My kids look white, but it honestly didn't matter if they're white. Um, The north side of Chicago is predominantly white. So when I walk around my neighborhood, and this is familiar to a lot of black moms out there, I am always assumed by the white moms in my neighborhood to be my children's nanny. And that is bias, right? But it's not just bias. It's also race. So if you are addressing unconscious bias, recognize that you are going to make automatic assumptions based on your exposure to people and places and schemas in your head and you know the culture that you've exposed to, the news that you're listening, watching, the, the media that you're consuming. But don't forget that bias is only half the story. You still have to address the fact that you know even if those white moms say, I think I'm the nanny because I'm black, whether they choose not to talk to me, that's not an unconscious decision. So if you as a company are, you know, say, okay, let's, a popular one is the schools you recruit at. If you think that the best schools are going to have the best people, and when someone comes in and they go to a school that you attended and you're like, well, that was a really great school, that's bias right there. But your decision to hire them is not bias. Your decision to tell people that this person is someone who you're going to champion and you're going to sponsor, that's an intentional decision. So you have to recognize that, yes, there are unconscious decisions that, you know, permeate everything that we do and the assumptions that we make of people. But it's up to us to do the next step. It's up to us to say, okay, I recognize that I'm going to give a better review of Dave because Dave went to the same school as me and he reminds me of me and, you know, he has a similar language pattern to me and all that stuff, right? But at the end of the day, I'm still going to have to intentionally work to make sure that Sandra, who did not, you know, have that same right fit approach, gets the good work, gets the right assignments, gets access to those spaces, because it would be so much easier for me to do that as a white man to do it with another white man like Dave. So that's what I want to do. That's the balance between being unconscious and being intentional about change. But do you think that people think that deeply, like, okay, we went to the same school, therefore, or is it often, hey, for some reason, I like this guy. For some reason, we click. He's my guy. He's my guy. And then you look at their resume, you're like, oh, this is is a really good guy. And you may not think through, you know, okay, the reason I think he's a good person, the reason I think he's a good fit. You know, there's a great great story uh, that Malcolm Gladwell tells in Blink, right? I think it is about 58% of CEOs are men above six foot tall, whereas only 13% of men are above six feet tall in America. Why do we think that tall men only make great leaders? There's your bias right there. What are the different words that we use for boys and girls? What are the different words that we use in reviews, right? We don't think about it. It's automatic. But when you play it out for somebody, when you show them the data, which is what I think every company has to do, you have to show the data. 
once you show the data and see the effects of the bias and see how one choice and then a hundred choices similar to that create spaces where yet again your c-suite is 10 white men and you know we keep on making those same choices again and again and again even if we don't think they're intentional. Uh, in the long run, Michelle, what can happen to a company if it just ignores diversity, especially at this time? It's so funny about how companies say they don't prioritize it, they don't have time, they don't have the budget, and they don't have the resources. And then over the last four months, so many companies magically found the time and the resources and the budget to you know, address DEI and to hire professionals. Oh my goodness, you know, in the middle of a pandemic and you know, essentially what we're turning into is a recession, like we were still able to find money, right? Because it's when you prioritize it. So you can wait until another external crisis happens, right? You can wait until there is a national emergency around it, or you can be proactive. And you can be proactive and put into place the measure so that when there is another crisis, when there are more protests, that you aren't scrambling to catch up with your peers who already put this into place years ago. You are going to fall behind your peers. You are going to lose talented people, especially talented people of color, talented marginalized minorities who would like to succeed in your company, but you are simply telling them that there is no space for you to do that here. So they're going to go to one of your competitors and they're going to do really great there if their competitors have created a space where their differences and their diversity and what they bring to the table and we have also created spaces of equity where the barriers to success are eliminated. Do the work or you are going to find yourself keep falling behind and if it's not this crisis it's going to be one of your managers said something public or someone posted something on social media or whatever it is there's always another crisis that someone calls me in about. Many thanks to lawyer and diversity and inclusion trainer, Michelle Silverthorne, and Fordham University's chief diversity officer, Rafael Zabata. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or catch up on shows you've missed with our podcast. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.